Somebody get a doctor. I need a shot of medicine, baby. When you get shot in the face and you almost die, and you are literally at the point where you know that the next couple of breaths might be your last because you're, you have no color in your skin. You've lost a ton of blood trying to count your breaths so that you can stay awake, so that you keep your mind active is a very unnerving thing. You know, getting shot in the face was the easiest part of my journey. It was the recovering that was the worst. Wrestling saved me. I've always said it to everybody that's ever asked, what stopped you from being a number? What stopped you from being a st statistic? What stopped you from, you know, having PTSD beat you? What stopped you from having depression and anxiety beat you? And it was wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bad Medicine Podcast. Today is a special one. We have a special guest. He is Ben Monty. That is me. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Good, good. You know, Ben, you're doing an excellent job of sounding enthused for this being the third time we've tried to connect with you and do this <laughs> due to technical difficulties. So I'm, I'm very proud of you. Fucking nerd. Thank you. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Hey, hey, is that Andrew calling people nerds? Is that fucking <laughs> yeah. Oh, the irony. I know, right? <laughs> hey, p hey, Pot, have you met Kettle? Calm down, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben, we'll just dive right into it. We just heard a little bit of the trailer, and there's going to be some people that know your story, and then some people that don't know your story. So for the people that don't, if you don't mind, I'd like to for us to dive in to hear a little bit about your story. Yeah, absolutely, man. So I was originally uh, a wrestler from 2005 to 2010, which is how we kind of all know each other. And in 2010, I left and joined the United States Army. I was with the 10th Mountain Division, which is light infantry. And after being at, at my duty station, after basic training for about 16 hours, I got a letter telling me that I was going to Afghanistan. Uh, a month later... Hey, Ben, can I just stop you there for, for one moment? So just so the viewers, under the viewers, listeners <laughs> <laughs> understand. So you're saying you were doing about 16 hours of basic training, and then that's how long it was before you found out you were being sent over? No, no, no. I had finished basic training and, and graduated, and I got to my first duty station where they send you to be actual army. You're not in the school anymore. You're like, you're actually like doing stuff. Okay. And I, got, I, got to my, I got to my duty station in Fort Polk, Louisiana, and they, I was there. I showed up at 8 o'clock at night, and by, what was it? I want to say it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon the next day, I had a letter saying, hey, you're going to Afghanistan. I was oh. like, oh, Okay. And originally, we to, yeah, originally we were supposed to go on Christmas Eve and then they kind of were like, well, we shouldn't be shit bags to these guys. So we'll, we'll back it up a month. So, <laughs> so we, I went, uh, on January 24th, the Tuesday after the Packers beat the bears in the NFC championship game. And, and I'm just saying, I heard, I heard the spite. I heard the spite. I'm just saying, oh, what a great day that was. That was a great day. And so uh, they flew us from Louisiana to Bangor, Maine. And from Maine, we went to Germany. And Germany, went to, we went to Kuwait. And from Kuwait, we went to uh, a place called Kazakhstan and uh, home of Borat. 
And then uh, I was just gonna say, yeah. if you met Borat, yeah. that was. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how serious we were getting here, so I was holding off. Yeah. So then we went from the Kazakhstan to Afghanistan, and uh, I got to Afghanistan. Uh, I was in the Wardock Providence, which was on the west side, over by Kabul and the Pakistani border, uh, in a place. Uh, there's a uh, there's a, a documentary that's really famous that won a bunch of awards a couple years back called the Restrepo, and it's about the Korangal Valley, which is the hottest uh, action spot that there is in Afghanistan. And right next to the Korangal is the Tangi Valley, and they meet in the middle. And I was in the Tangi Valley right where it met with the Korangal. So it was one of, it was in 2011, it was the hottest uh, spot for firefights and, and uh, IEDs and things like that. So we got there. Uh, it took us about six days of travel to get there. Uh, I got to my duty station. I uh, was there uh, for eight months and with about 50 days left in my tour, we got tasked up to do a mission in an area that nobody had been in for four years. And the last time somebody was there, they had to withdraw. And our job was to get all the way to the, to the district center that was behind this village that had always been a problem. Well, as we work our way there, we, we drop off supplies and uh, build up connexes to have like, Overwatch positions basically was what we were building. Uh, and we, after we had done two Overwatch positions, we got to our third one, which was going to be the hardest one, and we knew it was going to be a problem. And uh, I just remember we came over the valley, and, or came over the hill and looked down into the valley. And I looked out and I couldn't believe what I saw. I was up in the gunner's turret and uh, I looked down, and there is probably 13, 14 Russian tanks from the 70s with the old. Uh, with the old Russian logo on there. And uh, they were, some of them were, were beat up and blown into bits. Other ones were just sitting there. And uh, when Russia had evacuated Afghanistan in 2000, 2000 in uh, 1977, they, uh, they jumped off and just left all their stuff there. They, they didn't do anything with it. They didn't take it home. They let the, they actually kind of primarily gave the Afghanis weapons because they left everything behind and, and just ran basically. So we saw that we kind of knew that it was going to be a, a pretty gnarly time then. And then the whole day went by and it was normal. We didn't have anything happen uh, until five o'clock uh, besides the dust storm. And we, I would, and now this is where it gets fuzzy. So I was going to get something and I have no idea to this day what I was going to get. And it just drives me nuts because it's been eight years and I still can't remember. And uh, I was walking to go get something and all of a sudden I heard the, the, the crack of bullets and it uh, it just went uh, ding 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 and all of a sudden the dirt kicked up by my foot and the round the, the bullets had probably missed me by about a foot and a half to my right so it was close enough that the dirt kicked up and hit me in the pant leg and so we all run to take cover uh, dive down behind uh, a couple of sandbags and uh we're like looking for all the rest of our guys because everybody basically scattered. Uh, none of us even had our weapons on us because we were building uh, HESCO barriers, which is basically uh, a, a wall, a small wall that stops bullets. They're about 16 feet wide by about 10 feet high. And then you fill them with dirt and that's your, that's your protective barrier from, uh, from the locals or from whoever. And so we didn't even have our weapons on us to fire back. And so we had to like run to go to our weapons, which was a whole mess. And uh, my, my sergeant looked at me and asked me to find the guys that were in my squad. And I found everybody except for one of them. And I couldn't find my one buddy. 
Well, then I finally did find him. And when I looked back to tell my sergeant I had found him, a bullet came through and hit me right in the face. And it was a bullet that was shot from an old uh, Chetney sniper rifle, which is what I've been told by all my buddies. They said that's the only thing it could have been because it was a denser base lead bullet from or probably a Russian round. And what happens with the old bullets like that is they're they're heavier on the back end of the bullet. So when you fire them and they go across a long distance, the bullet starts to flip over end over end like a field goal kick. And just by the luck of the flip, the bullet went in backwards in my face, in my lower left jaw, and stopped in the back of my jaw and didn't go all the way through. Had the bullet actually hit me dead on, it would have it would have killed me for sure. So uh, that happened. I. Uh, Immediately, like, blacked out, and everything kind of came back. And when everything came back, uh, I was hunched over, and I saw the blood on me, and I knew it was bad because it was really dark blood. It wasn't, like, it wasn't like bright red. It was that, that purple stuff, and I knew I was in some trouble. Uh, and I yelled for my medic, and he came over, started shoving gauze in my face. And uh, we're still taking contact at this point. And my first sergeant runs over, like, G.I. Joe Rambo, firing back at guys. He baseball slides right next to us, and looks down at me and he goes, Jesus Christ, Monty, you got shot in the fucking face. You're a tough motherfucker. And I was like, I just kind of nodded like, uh-huh. And he goes, <laughs> and he looks down at me and he goes, well, what do you want to do? You want to stay here and wait for wait for the litter or do you want to try to make a run for it? And I looked up at him and thinking to myself, why the fuck are you asking me? Like, <laughs> like, like does, the, does, does the owner of Taco Bell ask the worker of like what the special of the week should be? No, they just say, hey, this is what we're doing. And so I, you know, in my best game of charades of my life, uh, point at my first sergeant take my pointer in my middle finger and make a little running man motion and then point to myself <laughs> and point to my medic and then point down the mountain. And he goes, you want to make a run for it? And I gave him the finger followed by a thumbs up and he goes, fuck yeah. And I go, uh-huh. And I just nodded my head. And so he was like, fuck yeah, let's go. And the, the next thing you know, I did the most embarrassing sandbag job of all time. Uh, as we ran down the side of this mountain about 400 yards and uh, I, for every 10 steps they took, I maybe took two. I was just dragging. I had no motor skills or nothing. I was toast. And uh, we got down to the bottom and of course me being like, Hey, I'm fine. I try to set up my own gurney cause you know, I'm a helper and uh, that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. And uh, they're like, knock it off, dumbass, lay down. I'm like, Oh, fine. We don't gotta get mad at me. I'm just the people pleaser. Yeah. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I was trying to be a team player, you know, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to hurt nobody. Uh, but then they did that. The helicopter finally came or, or the helicopter couldn't land at first because we were taking so much contact. Uh, the F 50, the F 18s came through and they dropped uh, four 2000 pound JNAM bombs. Uh, so the guys who shot me is not in one place anymore, but several. And so uh, it, it was something, man, when you see when you see when you see the side of a mountain become a great big ass hole, that's a that's an interesting sight to see. And uh, then that, the, heli the helicopter came and landed. And when it landed, it picked us up. Uh, they shoved an ID into my shin bone. That was a needle that looked like a dipstick for your car. So that was awesome. Uh, I, I I had a beautiful flight medic and she cut all my clothes off of me. And I jokingly said to her as best as I could, don't tell my wife that you got me naked faster than she did. 
and <laughs> which I thought was an extremely solid opening line. I, I was really proud. Oh, I, yeah. that's a 10. Yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, I, I, mean, I was really proud of myself on that one. And then I passed out. Then And then I woke back up, and I was in Fob Shank, which is where they were taking care of me. And then they uh, were like, okay, we're going to get the bullet out and do your surgery. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. They're like, do you want us to tell your wife? I was like, just tell her I have a cut on my lip. I don't want her to worry. Because that was my thought process. And then the next thing you know, I woke up in Germany and they're like, you know, I couldn't talk. They had, they had to intubate me because I had lost my airway and my carotid had, uh, they had actually put a, a stint in my neck because my carotid artery was, was uh, swollen and being pre- had pressure put on it. So they had to put a little uh, thing around it to stop it from kinking. And so, uh, cause I had, I had worked critical twice on the, on the, on the uh, helicopter from uh, Afghanistan to Germany or, or to uh, the plane, excuse me, from the, uh, from the C-17 plane in Afghanistan to Germany, I had actually went critical twice. And so then they, uh, I, I woke up in Germany and they were like, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to take care of you. This is what's happened. And they kind of freshened me, freshened me up on what was going on and what they were going to do. And then they called my wife and I heard my wife and I couldn't talk. So I had to write everything down. And me, you know, being the Don Juan Casanova that I am, the first thing I write is ask my wife if she wants to drop the hammer, which is our days of thunder reference uh, of having sex. So, and, and I, and I, days of thunder. That was just talked about last week. Yeah, yep, it was. And, and my wife, I could hear my wife laughing on the phone and she even admits to this day that when she heard that, she knew I was going to be okay. Um, and then I passed out again and I took a... Uh, I, I, you know, I just took a nice little coma uh, for about four days and uh, woke back up with a beard. And that was some shit. Uh, <laughs> looked out my window and saw the Texas flag and uh, was like, well, hot damn. And the next thing you know, I was in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And uh, then then the real fun began because then, then there was no more there was no more rest or sleep. So they put everything back together for me and uh, really. uh started the process of uh fixing my face and uh getting my uh my traumatic brain injury under control and and my uh medications and stuff like that so that's it in a nutshell i try to make it as short as i can it's just a long ass story yeah no absolutely you know and 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 certainly i think it's important uh also for the listeners to know that you know this wasn't just um a one-off surgery for you uh correct you had to have multiple yeah i had i had 14 facial reconstructions and I had 16 total uh, uh, procedures on my face uh, from the day I got shot to the last day that they did the last thing with my face. It took 1,900 days. Exactly. Jeez. And, and you didn't have any input as far as saying, uh, you know, like you didn't bring a picture of like Brad Pitt or Tom Hardy <laughs> in with you and say, Hey, can you maybe do something I, with this? I was just going to ask if you were going to get it to look back. Uh, no, no, but they did put, uh, they did put cadaver bone in my face. So I like to tease my wife and tell her that I have a hot supermodel who died in a tragic boating accident. And she likes to retort with that. I have a 45 year old plumber named Hank who had type two diabetes and was drastically overweight. <laughs> well, I hate to break too, but she's probably more correct than yeah, you are. More, more than more than more than likely, that would explain why my plumbing skills have went up by like six points since I started uh, back. So, 
Well, that that does tend to happen. I've <laughs> I've seen a couple of bad movies on that. And that seems to be the case. <laughs> but uh, I had to base the science on a movie. <laughs> so you get through all that, yep. uh, which is you know clearly right there a lot more than what uh, most people could handle. And then, kind of, where did you find yourself? What you know, what mindset did you find yourself in? Did you feel like you were were still kind of missing something because that's the big thing you hear about, right? Is yeah. you know, so many soldiers come back and they miss the brotherhood, they miss working together towards a goal. Uh, I guess was that something that you were really kind of yearning for? Um, well, it was really hard because uh, when when I finally did get out of the hospital, I was in the hospital for almost a month, and when they finally had me get out of the hospital, I went into a thing called the Warrior in Transition Battalion, which is basically everybody who got fucked up. So it's all, all the amputees, it's all the IED guys, it's all the burn victim guys, it's all the guys who got shot, it's everybody like that. Uh, we call the we call ourselves the Broke Dicks. We're all a bunch of broke dicks. <laughs> So, so we're in the broke dick battalion and basically uh, they have you just your your mission from then on is just to get better. Like that's all they want you to do. They don't they don't make you do anything else. Go to your doctor appointments, see your therapist, uh, take your medication, you know, be where you need to be for formations and, and just do the army thing. And uh, so that's what we did. But it was it was hard for me because my guys were still there, still back in Afghanistan uh, yep. and, and were there for two months until. Uh, when I finally got to go back to my regular duty station, it took about three months, four months before I got to go back. Um, you know, it was just weird because seeing all those guys again, and, uh, and it was crazy because they had never gotten an update about me. Uh, they didn't know if I was alive or dead. They didn't know if I had made it or not. Um, everything was because of where we were and what we were doing, everything was classified and they couldn't share the information of what, what had happened, um, besides what everybody had seen. And so, uh, meeting them was really emotional. It was pretty hard. And then, uh, I think it was a couple of days after that, they basically sat me down and said, listen, uh, you'll never be in an infantry field again. Um, you'll never do anything with any type of physical activity. So drill instructor is out or, or any type of, uh, you know, sniper qualifications that you had dreams of doing or anything like that is not going to happen. You're going to have to be on the, uh, you know, office side of things if you're going to stay. And I just remember thinking to myself, well, I am like the last fucking guy who's the office secretary. So that's not going to happen. And uh, I had to have a long talk with my wife. And then they finally came back a couple days later uh, with my with my uh, the process of what they were going to do. And uh, we did all, all my rating stuff for if I want to get out because they make you do that just in case. And uh, then when I got out of the army, it was basically... It, it wasn't that I wanted to leave. It was that there was really like, I couldn't do what I was trained to do. So there was no point in staying for me. Right. There was just nothing there. Totally. Yeah. And then, then, and so the drop off wasn't that bad though. Cause San Antonio is in a very military st- city. Uh, they, they, they are really big on, on the military. They have uh, three air force bases there. And, uh, and then also the, the army base. And uh, it's a, uh, it's a pretty big, uh, uh, area that's really overpopulated with veterans and stuff like that. Um, fun side note story on that. I lived a mile away from where Shawn Michaels grew up on Randolph Air Force Base. And they have a, <laughs> they have a picture of his dad in, in, in the actual medical hall from like, for like a former commander of the, of, of the medical hall wing there. Really? Yep. So that was, that was, that was some shit. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah, but so then I, I did I did that, and then when I re- when I retired in July of 2013, 
Uh, you know, they had given me a hundred percent disability and told me that I was all free and clear to go. And the money was a lot better getting out than staying in. And, and it was the thing about thinking about the kids and stuff like that, because I, we had just had, you know, we had our two kids and Crystal was, had just had our third kid, uh, four days before I retired. And, um, it was one of those things where we just had to, we, it was family time. We wanted to do that. Well, then we were living in San Antonio for a couple of weeks and I still had all my friends around me. So it wasn't that bad. And then uh, we got called by Operation Homefront about possibly being able to be gifted a house uh, anywhere in the United States. And we jumped on that and tried to, you know, we were hopeful that we were good candidates and they would pick us. And not only did they wind up picking us, but then uh, Tim McGraw, the country singer, had actually picked us for his 31 city tour. And he and Chase Bank and Operation Homefront together uh, gave us our house uh, here in Wisconsin. So yeah, Tim McGraw, the country singer, gave me a house, which is another weird part of my life. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> incredible. I, I had no prior knowledge of this, so I, yeah. I wanted to get behind it, and that's pretty awesome that something like that could happen. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, man, because you know I'm looking outside here on a Sunday, and it's about eight degrees, and uh, you could have picked anywhere, huh? Yeah, I could have picked anywhere. <laughs> okay yeah i i i'm I'm a i'm a sucker for i was a sucker for home at the time and uh yeah yeah right and and nothing was bad and like we moved here and everything was good and i think it was about three months of living here and then the bottom fell out pretty hard where it was just like i felt like i failed and i was really you know survivor guilt was really hard because it was you know we had a lot of other guys who got hurt there when we were over there and uh wondering about them and, and and that's when the hole kind of started where it was just like what am I doing? Like, and it's hard. Cause you know, I was like, you retire at 30. Like, what do you do? You know, there's no, there's no playbook on this, you know? And, uh, yeah, no, I think a lot of times people think it would be great to, uh, you know, to retire early and you know, and you're, you're done and things like that. But when you don't have, when you're used to being a very driven person with, you know, clearly defined goals and, and things that you're you know, objectives, so to speak, I can imagine that'd be, a huge change. I mean, you see that with NFL players all the time, you know, they, they get done playing and they don't know what to do with themselves. And, you know, I can only imagine that that must've been, you know, a thousand times worse. You're, you're sitting at home and just trying to figure out where to go. Yeah. I, at a job, at my job where I work, we have a lot of, you know, ex-military people and they, they all talk about that too, all the time, the struggle of trying to, you know, get back into a normal life after being in the military for, you know, four, eight, how many years they've been in. Yeah, exactly. And then it, it just got from there. It got it got crazier because a year went by, and I didn't go see anybody like I should have. I I didn't take care of myself mentally at all. And then I started. And then I started losing guys. So in August of fourteen, I lost my first guy to suicide, who was named Christopher Linhoff, and he was a guy I was in basic training with, and and he had uh, died on his birthday. And so that was like the first one. And he, and he was, he was, I mean, we weren't super, super, super close, but we were really close. I mean, I don't want to say he was my best friend in basic, but we were, we had a really good understanding. We were really good buddies. He was part of our clique and stuff. So we always kind of had each other's backs. And uh, so that one really hurt. And then uh, I think it was two months later, I lost my second guy. And, uh, and then they just all started dropping. And uh, it was, uh, it, it was one of those things where, the bottom's already falling out, falling out. You already feel like you, you like you kind of lost, and then your buddies start dying, and and then they're not just and they're not just dying; they're killing themselves. And and then you're and you can't help 
but feel like it's your fault a little bit because you didn't read like once last like for every time every time it happened i'd always go back through one's last time i talked to him on facebook you know right like right. and then you see oh you haven't talked to him in three months and you're like wow like i i'm a dick i should have said something i should have just and i mean life gets in the way and it is what it is but your brain just uh, kind of automatically goes there and uh and that and that was tough and then you know, and then for me, that, that just kind of sealed my fate for that little bit of time because then I, you know, started abusing my pain meds because one became two and two became four and four became eight. And then the next thing you know, I'm taking 12 pills a day. I'm going through 180 Percocet in, in like two weeks. And my wife is, you know, why, why like, you know, has at the at the beginning had no idea because I was I, I was the worst kind of addict that there was. I was the addict who didn't think he was an addict but who was also a smart addict and could still had the, and still had the ability of choosing when he took his, his stuff so that nobody else could see that he was, you know, high out of his gourd, which is, which is the worst one to be period. And, uh, but then eventually that self-control falls out the bottom too. And then it's, you can't really pick when you want to, you know, take, you know, eight, nine pills and get high. Like it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where it just kind of happens. And then, you know, and then, you know, you, you hide it from the doctors and you're like, Hey, you know, what would help is instead of giving me 180 Percocet, you should just give me 90 Oxy because it's the same thing. And then they're like, Oh yeah, you're a stand up soldier. We'll help you out. And here you go. And, and then, and, and then you graduate and then you graduate from, from Percocet to Oxy. And it's like, well, this is even better. And it's not, it's actually way worse. That's my whole life. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that's, and, and, you know, you, you hear about that, you hear about, and this is, you know, I, I guess my own bias, but to me, that just screams laziness of a bureaucratic structure that just wants to give guys pills and shut them up instead of taking the time, putting in the work and, and helping these people, you know? I can tell you right yeah. now that, the, that on the military side of things, that's exactly what they do. I had a, I had a retired colonel as my doctor and he was a really nice guy. But that guy's answer to everything was, well, I'm going to write you a prescription for this. I'm going to write you a prescription for that. Here's this. Here's this. Here's that. And uh, I mean, there was at one point when I was first out of the uh, in that when I was first out of the hospital, uh, when I was first out of the hospital, I think I had like 13 different medications I had to take. But it was mostly to get my brain fixed because of all the swelling and stuff. But it was. Sure. But then as time tapered off, it was just everything was pills. That was always the answer. It wasn't like, well, why don't you go talk to somebody? Why don't you go do this? Why don't we figure this out? Figure that out give you these exercises, give you these tools. Uh, the, right. Exactly. And, and the VA does a better job, does a better job of that. But the problem is, is that the VA is so overwhelmed and so understaffed and so under, yeah. and so under budgeted that it, that it's, it's just as bad. So. Yeah. I've heard plenty of stories of guys having to deal with the VA and how it's, it's just so rough and the sensor overwhelmed. They don't listen to everything that you say. And so then things get mixed up or they don't get any, everything right. Oh, man, I can tell you right now that uh, for the VA, so like when you retire out of the army and you get out, the army doesn't pay your retirement pay. You get, if you're wounded, the VA pays you a per diem and like you get your VA retirement pay. Uh, which is a different kind of pay structure, but there's a gap between those. So the army pays you like $1,300 a month while you're retired until you get your first VA paycheck. And your first VA paycheck is a back paycheck. And the waiting list for, for this to get your V to get the money that you're supposed to live off of for the rest of your life is over two years long. And then when you get, so, so I was in the, I was still in the army and I was in there for 13 months before I retired and I was still waiting to get my VA pay. And I had to wait another 
six months before I finally got it. So it took, I got expedited to the front of the line. It still took 18 months for me to get my first paycheck from the VA. Wow. And, yeah. and that was, that was getting pushed to the front of the line. Those guys who have disability ratings that were lower than mine that waited double the time. I mean, I've heard, I, I had a couple of guys who said, who I talked to that had said that it took uh, 32 months to get their stuff done, which is insane. And uh, it's just an overwhelmed system. That's the problem. So you've been going, so you're, you know, you were going through this, you were going through the hassle with the VA, you know, you were having self-doubts and, and that sort of thing. What was, I guess, what kind of was the turning point for you to, to look at yourself and say, okay, I've had enough of this. It's, there's two ways to go here. You know, did, did you have that moment? I guess I don't want to put words in you know, I, I did. No, I, I did, but it wasn't me. It was my wife. My wife caught me. I mean, like, like any addict, you, you slip up and sooner or later you get caught. And my wife caught me, told her it was going to be fine. And then when she caught me the second time, that was when we had the sit down, come to Jesus moment where it was, listen, you are a father of four and my husband. We have this life. This is going to end that. It's literally this or us. And I'm not giving you a, she just really kind of brutally, honestly said, I'm not going to even give you a minute to decide. You're going to tell me right now. Because if it takes you less, if it takes you more than 10 seconds to tell me us or them, then, you know, you've kind of made your choice at the point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, immediately I said her and, and went to the VA, started seeing somebody talking to somebody about it. And then it was a lot of, it was very much my wife kind of grabbing me by the, you know, by the, uh, by the old shirt collar and shaking me, you know, awake and being like, you know, fix yourself. You're, you're, you're really jacked up right now. And, uh, and it's been good ever since then. And then, it, and then it turned into, okay, I was, uh, I, I almost, you know, went to that really dark part. Like, how do I, how do I make sure that nobody else does this? And it was after I kind of had fixed myself and felt like I was back on my two feet and kind of better, um, you know, it was, you know, then wrestling kind of came back and I was able to, to wrestle a match, uh, in to the December, 2014. And it was, it was everything I wanted it to be. It was nice. And then when that went away and I, I, I took another year off of wrestling and didn't do anything, that was when the pills and stuff really kind of took hold. And that was when it was really bad it was because I, I had trained in the, and the thing that I kept the monster at bay for so long was, you know, I trained for four and a half months to get into shape to wrestle that match. And, okay, and, and, that one match, yeah. Right? And, and I had, and, 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 and I look back on it, it was, I was fine because I had a mission, I had a purpose and I had a goal. And, yep. and the second that was over, I didn't have that anymore. And then it was easy to slip right down into depression. So, uh, that's what wound up, you know, I wound up going to my doctors and saying, hey, if I wanted to do this full time, like, is this something that I could do? Is this even possible? And I was expecting everybody to say no, but one by one, they kind of were like, yeah, but you got to come in and check with us. You got to check with us. You got to check with us. And so we kind of made a plan where it was, I would go talk to them and check with them. And, you know, my wife was really pushing for me to go and, and do the, uh, do the, uh, wrestling again because she's like you need an outlet the problem is is you don't have a purpose or a mission or an outlet like you you need this and so she really pushed me forward to going back into doing it full time and I was able to come back in 2016 and I've been back ever since and it's and that's when when I got wrestling back in my life it it was like that was the switch and everything turned back on and I was fine and then that's what kind of snowballed everything into wanting to to start frontline pro wrestling and, and to give back to the veteran community and then Nope. 
Ben, you still there? Yeah, I'm still there. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. We just weren't sure if we're going to have to take number five here. No, <laughs> Yeah, no. Also, that's okay. So you got you got things going back with uh, the wrestling. You're kind of back in the saddle there. You started up your own promotion. Um, you know, obviously using that you know as best you can to try to help others. And um, I guess where has wrestling uh, taken you now uh, recently? Uh, well, everything kind of everything kind of snowballed uh, in the last two years. And really took off, and I got really lucky, and had an opportunity to go to Canada and wrestle there and do stuff over there, and then I had a really good experience there. And then I wound up being able to go to Japan, and uh, it wasn't that I was great; it was just a lucky star kind of a thing fell in my lap. I got lucky, and uh, had a really good tour there. Got invited back, had a second tour there, and then just in November of this last year, I went for my third tour there, and uh, now it's just awesome, and it's a fun time. So. So when you say a tour, Ben, like, are we talking like a five day tour? Are we talking two days? Are we talking 10? How many days were you? All of them were two weeks. Three. All three, all three, all three of them were two weeks long. Okay. And, uh, you know, and obviously you were in the military, you had been all, you know, to a lot of different places in the world. Uh, I know you and I briefly talked about it, uh, on a show a couple months back, um, for the listeners, can you kind of talk about, I guess, the, the culture shock you had, uh, even for those 10 days going into Japan? I know you had told a couple of different stories to me about being over there and just the, the flood of humanity that uh, that you saw and the pure amount of people. It, it, it is packed. They build things on top of things. I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. I mean, any type of shopping center you went to had seven levels. Uh, they, they don't build outwards. They build upwards. And, uh, and just the the... the the biggest culture shocks were the food because they don't really do grocery stores. Everything's kind of like all for all in it, like, you can't find a Walmart there, or like a festival foods or like, they don't have stuff like that. And uh, a lot of it's restaurants based and, 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 you know, little mom and pop cafe places with their ramen noodles and things like that. And that's a, the, the ramen is really big over there, man. I can't even tell you those ramen shops are huge. And, uh, and then just the, the wrestling fans themselves were so uh, I mean, it's real. It's really real to them. It's baseball and professional wrestling over there, and and they treat you like a superstar. They treat you like your your top notch cloud nine. Uh, when I went for my second tour, I was actually over there with uh, Dave Chris from OI4K and the OVE guys from Impact Wrestling, and then we had met up with Hanson and Rowe, the the, the War Raiders now in WWE. And uh, those guys walked me around and kind of told me all these stories about everything. I mean, fans buy you dinner. They, they literally come to your shows to make sure that you're taken care of. I had a fan my first tour. I showed up and he's like, hey, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, I told him where I, he asked me where I was staying for a hotel. And I told him. And he goes, oh, that's not a really good one. Hold on. And he came back and he goes, here, you go to this hotel. I paid for it. It's for you. And it was like a, four, it was like, it was like a $400 hotel room. <laughs> and, and, then, oh, wow. and so then I try to be nice and give the money from the hotel back to the promoter and the promoter goes, Oh no, that's your bonus. And my bonus was bigger. My bonus was bigger than my payday. So <laughs> <laughs> what would you say the biggest difference is between an American wrestling crowd and a Japanese wrestling crowd? Sophistication. <laughs> Honestly, I hate it. I get, there's no better way to say it. It's just when you do something there, it's very like, golf clappy but it but it but it's, it's but it's 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 like a much more appreciated crowd and they still pop i mean they still pop for big things when you do big waterfall stuff and things like that like they they pop for the big stuff but they also appreciate the little stuff i uh 
I wrestled Kenso, the old uh, WWE tag team uh, champion from 2004 on SmackDown. He had the Kabuki girl. I wrestled him in a tournament over there. And literally the spot we did over there was he grabbed both my hands in a, in a knuckle lock, gave me a leg sweep and tried to pin me. I picked my arm up. He tried to pin me. I picked my arm up. He tried to pin me. He tries to pin me 10 times. I picked my arm up all 10 times. And the fans acted like I had just hit him with a missile dropkick. It was like, <laughs> like it was it was that the, the fighting spirit is what they call it over there is is such a huge thing uh, that it's it's just so much different than America and it all feels real. It feels like a fight. When I went, I uh, when I defended the KOTC title in uh, in uh, Sportiva down in Nagoya. Uh, I mean, it was all, I mean, tons of cameras and media and we're sitting there taking pictures with the belt in the ring right before I'm supposed to wrestle my opponent. And then like the ladies are giving us flowers and it's like a whole thing. And it was, it was just like, I just, I can remember sitting there uh, thinking to myself, like, this would never happen in America in a million years. This is the weirdest. No, it's, because I was going to ask, like, how are Japanese wrestlers versus American wrestlers? Uh, that style oh, stuff is bullshit. They, they, like, everybody, think, everybody thinks that's what they want to do all the time. I'm going to let you in on a secret. It's not. You got to remember, these guys wrestle for a living. So they do 20 to 30 matches a month. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not looking to do strong style every single time. And the biggest thing that I was told from a wrestler there, that the biggest mistake Americans make is they come over and they strong style whoever they wrestle. And they beat the shit out of the guy. And the Japanese are nice and thank him for the time. And then they never come back again because they did, the, they did all the bullshit. And I had the really sound advice from a buddy over there. He came up to me and said, hey, you know, what, I, what we need to do tonight is do comedy and haha and just be super entertaining. All right, cool. And we were light, we worked really light with it with the guys we worked and and we did all the haha and that's what was that's what got me like asked back to go for my second one so sure I can see that be a you know a misconception if a guy's been you know over here in America watching a bunch of tapes of you know Akiyama and Tenzan or something from back in the day and these guys are just killing each other and no selling and everything else and you go over there and you think oh this is, this is what it is so this is every match yeah exactly. And then somebody grabs you and says, hey, lighten up, brother. It's a work. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm telling you right now, that's what it's like, man. They, they don't – like, we did some super shows where they were like, you know, I I work strong style there, but it, only at the promoter's request. Only at the uh, – like, I we did a, a thing called Shampura this last year, and we were we were in a, a six-man tag match, and, we were, and I was told, you know, hey, you know, uh, strong style tonight, please. And it was like, yeah, okay, no, no problem. Uh, because for those big super WrestleMania type shows that they do, uh, when, we, when we did the when we did the Budokan, uh, we were really lucky. This last tour, myself and, and Dread and, and Vic Capri, we went and did, got to rock the Budokan over in uh, Okinawa and for Just Tap Out, which is uh, uh, a promotion that works with Ta- uh, Kai and Tai Dojo, which is Takamichi Noku, and. Uh, like Fujinami was on there and Kota Ibushi was on there and Taka was on there and Sima was on there. And it was a, uh, it was a who's who type of thing. And that was the night where they were like, Hey, you know, strong style tonight, please. Thank you. And so, and, and, and you're kind of just looking like, like they're, they're, it's almost, it's almost funny when you listen to it because it's like, you want me to beat the shit out of somebody? Like, okay. I suppose. Get your shit in brother. Yeah. That's really what it is. So, Ben, I'm going to take a small transition here. 
I believe, and I can't remember the story, but did Quinn make you eat like four pies or something? Tell us some pranks oh, that Quinn God. used to do to you. Well, just give us a few stories, because I know you. I know there's that pie story, and I keep forgetting what it was. Well, first off, Quinn was the worst, like ever. <laughs> like fair everybody loved me. <laughs> Quinn, Quinn was Quinn was the guy I always looked at like there was a group of guys when I broke in that were like the gatekeepers and it was like Quinn and Tommy Gunn and Dinty Moore and Dysfunction and Silas Young and Steve Stone. Oh, you're being far too kind to put me in there with those guys. Not far too kind. Uh, and so and so those were the guys. And so Quinn one night we got drunk at Sharky's bar and afterwards we went to Perkins and the, Quinn's like you're gonna eat a pie and I was like. <laughs> <laughs> I was, like, was he, I was he like, talking like Vince McMahon for that? Uh, yeah, and I, and I laughed, and I was like, nah, I'm just going to get some moons over my hammock. He goes, damn it, Greeny, you're not eating shit besides what I tell you. <laughs> you're going to eat that fucking pie, and you're going to like it. <laughs> and what kind of pie was it again? He goes, he goes, you're going to eat a pecan pie. <laughs> and, like, and, I, and, I go, and I go, but Quinn, we have a problem. And he goes, what? And I go, I'm allergic to pecans, man. <laughs> like I'm gonna die, and, <laughs> and, and 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 scarily and scarily enough, I was waiting for him to literally look at me and go, I pull an Ivan Drago and go, "If you die, you die." And, <laughs> and, and and so he goes, "Fine, I'll I'll let you choose the pie. I'm a fair guy." And I'm like, "Wow, dang, <laughs> I don't even like I, I don't even fucking like pie to begin with. So this whole thing sucks anyway." <laughs> and, he, and he goes pick one and I go I don't know pumpkin pie because I was thinking hey that's got to be really easy you know you don't even got to eat the crust so the lady comes out and brings me this pumpkin pie a whole pumpkin pie and I go to <laughs> stick my fork in it and my fork fucking bends because it's frozen solid <laughs> that is the part I, I remember the most is the pie being frozen. I, I got to say. And so Quinn is like, oh, it's okay. I'm not going to make you eat a frozen pie. Let me help you out here. Hey, sweetheart, why don't you throw that in the microwave for one minute? Thank you. And I looked at him and I'm like, one minute? That ain't going to be sick. Like, what are you? So it comes back. And the pie is still completely frozen in the middle, but it's soupy on the outsides. And he goes, <laughs> and he looks at me, and I look down at the pie, and I look at him, and he goes, start your way on the edge and work to the middle. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was solid advice. It was. It was. And so, and so I, I, ate a, I ate a whole pie that night. That was the... Uh, yeah, I gotta say, we had a a ton of great uh, great memories and great matches working for uh, for Frank and Falco down there at BCW. I mean, it was just a, it was a great group of guys. Everybody was kind of in that same. Everybody kind of had the same mindset. They wanted to go out there, have a great match, but then they also wanted to hang out afterwards. Um, were you there when uh, when Ted DiBiase Jr. was on one of the shows? I was there. I was there when him and Tate and uh, Darren Wade were all there from. Uh, from uh, That's your small, yeah, small guys down yeah, south. Yeah, from Noah. All those Noah guys came down there, and they were all uh, big into their. I just remember that certain people got mad because me and Justin Dredd got over with them more than they did, and then they got upset with us. <laughs> we got. I was telling the fellas the uh, the story about uh, when we were in uh, 
Uh, what was that bar we used to go to? Is it Sharky's? It was a different one. But anyhow, we were there, and I think Dysfunction started it, where we were calling Ted DiBiase Jr. Randy Orton for, like, the whole night. We are trying to convince all the women in the bar that he was Randy Orton. And then, like, three months later, when he gets called up, he's in Randy Orton's group. I just thought <laughs> – Got a kick out of that. It was outstanding. That, I always remember that was funny. I remember one of the funnier ones that I remember, though, was, and it was a little later on in, in the deal, but when you were on Raw and got busted open with the ladder by Hunter. <laughs> oh, we still got to dive into that. And, and, and Quinn walks into NWA Wisconsin at the time, and it's like everybody just looked at him like he was the golden goose because he, <laughs> he made it to the show. They, they, it was and and I remember it was everyone was laughing and it was cool and stuff but I remember I look over and this this terrible wrestler named Tony Mega looks at me and he goes man can you believe it how lucky is he and I go what do you mean and he goes they did a close up on his face on raw <laughs> <laughs> and I was and I, go ahead man and, and I was just like yeah man they sure did that was <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all I got for you. Yeah, I think the uh, – yeah, well, and then the funny thing with that is that, like, one of the first guys I see after I come through the curtain is Teddy Jr. sitting there. <laughs> and, like, I just give him a laugh, and I said – I said something like, what did they do to my beautiful face or some some shit like that? And he had a laugh about it. So it was, it was all good, well, good you, stuff. You were laughing about it because from what I heard, you were getting stitches put in crying like a little baby. <laughs> I'm pretty sure uh, Swago was uh, giving us that status report. Well, everybody has their own, I guess, but uh, oh, so I do have there, verification. Was that after our own Swago punched DBS in the nuts? <laughs> oh man! So Ben, I gotta Benny, I gotta put you over here for a moment because uh, a young Green Diamond Dave came in after uh, Mason Quinn spotted him in the gym one day. What, and, what, uh, what, 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 what were you What were you doing at the gym, Dave? Were you wiping down the equipment or? I was doing my best to try and lift five pounds, buddy. Light test, chest day, toning up. Every day is a tone day for Dave Damone. <laughs> you got it, brother. So anyway, a young guy, Dave comes in and has a match with, uh, I believe it was Cody Rice. Poor Cody at that time. I uh, had to work with a, a green kid. And uh, I remember there was a couple guys, but you – and Nick Colucci were one of the first ones to pull me aside and you gave me a ton of advice. So I got to thank you for that because you saw me as a heel, which I was being a heel. And then you just told me X, Y, Z. And then from there you, you kind of had my back on stuff. So I got to, got to thank you for that. Well, no problem, man, I guess. Hey, I, I look at it this way. If you weren't worth a shit, I wouldn't have talked to you at all. So. <laughs> well, hey, my first experience really in the ring is I did a battle royal in Fond du Lac, and uh, yeah, you were out there in the ring. I was supposed to get eliminated earlier, and you like grabbed me in the corner, and you told me right away, like, dude, no, you're staying in longer. You, you, this crowd wants you. We're going to keep you in longer. And well, so I couldn't be a complete cocksucker. You invited your entire <laughs> 900 people from your family to the fucking show. <laughs> Like, they don't it care. Must be, it, must, it must be really nice to do a battle royal and get pop of the night because your entire extended family is in the audience. Gasped and like you were like choking me, and all I could hear you was saying, "I was like, breathe, breathe." So I like I was no selling the choke and just freaking breathing as much as I could. <laughs> oh, imagine that Andrew was blown up in a match. 
stuff never happens. Never. In a, ba- in a, ba- in a battle royal, by all means. Holy shit. <laughs> Boy, just, just running those ropes left and right, Daddy. Hey, I, 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 hey didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't I fucking put you over there too, Andrew? Didn't I let you eliminate me? Yep. Yeah, you did. Yeah, see? There, there we go for the betterment of the business, I guess. So, Ben, what, what kind of current projects do you got going on? Can you kind of give us a little tidbit of uh, Still Here, the documentary? Yeah, so what happened was, was uh, Still Here was one of those things that kind of, again, fell in my lap. I have a lot of that going on. And, uh, and uh, so it was – I had done my first show – for Frontline Pro in Spencer, Wisconsin, uh, last year, almost a year ago to the date, uh, the 23rd was, was the date that we did it last year. And um, when I did that show, I met a veteran named Eric Beach. And Eric Beach uh, runs a uh, production company called Red Jester Productions. And uh, we kind of got to talking. We were buddies about everything. Uh, we even did a show for a, a, prof, a nonprofit of his that, that he was helping out with called In Country. And uh, we just kind of stayed in touch. And then finally, it was one of those things where he was like, hey, man, like we should do a movie about your life. And so last year we did a beta test where we, we filmed the show in October. We put it out on Facebook just to see what kind of response we get. And I think as of today, it has like almost 10,000 views or it has 10,000 views. It's really close. Uh, it's a snippet. Uh, it's a, it's a longer extension of the snippet that you guys played at the beginning of the show. And uh, we did a second one in December just to see again. And that one got about 5,000 views. So we kind of looked at each other and was like, hey, this is something we should try. And we went out, tried to get some funding. And uh, we were very lucky to have uh, Hunts Brothers Pizza came on board and, and gave us a huge donation to get us off the ground. And then uh, we did an Indiegogo, which raised us another $2,000. And we had private nice. donations, too, that helped us out. And so we've raised almost $15,000 to do this to do this movie. And then we got really lucky because Tim Abel, an actor out in Hollywood, he's been in We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson and done movies with Steven Seagal and all these guys. He jumped on and believed in our project to help us because he had known Eric and, and he heard the story and wanted to be a part of it. And he actually has a friend that we all kind of know whose name is Rob Van Dam. RBD. And Rob Van Dam heard about it and was like, hey, let's, let's talk. And the next thing you know, it's a Wednesday night at 11 o'clock and I'm talking to Rob Van Dam in my kitchen. And... Uh, <laughs> thinking to myself what the hell just happened like why like what is going on in my life and uh so that all happened and uh you know rob was really cool about it he wanted to help out he wanted to do stuff and uh just was really awesome to work with and uh so now he's on board as as an executive producer for us and is going to have a uh we're going to film with him in las vegas here later this year and uh really help put the project over uh actually he just came out with a uh, documentary of his own called Headstrong, which you can find on Voodoo, iTunes, and a bunch of other things. And uh, I'm in there for like a half a heartbeat, so that's cool. <laughs> that's awesome. uh, he, 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 he ripped me. He sent me a joke. He goes, "Hey, thanks for being my movie man. Sorry, you're uncredited." <laughs> I'm the oh, only you were guy. That cool. I am the only guy in that fucking movie with a talking with a talking line who is. Fucking, <laughs> fucking Cabana got a shout out there. Dreamer did. I'm sure all his buddies get fucking stuff, but good old Ben McCoy has to be uncredited just to face the background. <laughs> well, so, I mean, that's what's great about 
Sorry, Ben. Go ahead. No, no. I was just gonna say. So that that's the, that's kind of how everything started with with still here, and we're in the filming process now. We filmed yesterday. Uh, we're we're filming in Chicago this next week. Uh, I debut when I debut down in Freelance down there, and uh, we're filming uh, with Ken Anderson uh, in Minneapolis and then and in Wisconsin here uh, next month on April sixth uh, when he comes in for Frontline Pro, and uh, just. Yeah, it's kind of just taken off to, and kind of, it's the weirdest thing. I never thought anybody would want to make a movie about my life. And now that it's happened, it's, it's really hard to like let it soak in and be like, this is okay to do. Cause like, you're always feeling like, wow, I'm like an egotistical dick. Like, look at me, like, hey, you know, movie about my life, you know, suck my wiener. And, and, uh. Well, no, I mean, and, that, and I was just going to say that, you know, I think that's what's great about, um, you know, just generally you have all this, um, all this ability to get, you know, to get your story out because I mean, you know, you're obviously being very humble about it, but you know, you got to think about like 99% of the population out there. I mean, has done nothing close to this. I mean, if they're lucky. They might've played some sports in high school and, you know, then they just went to their, you know, their day-to-day job. I mean, yeah. You know, being a pro wrestler at any level isn't exactly normal. And I think a lot of these different movies uh, that a lot of the boys have done, you know, whether it's, uh, I saw in, uh, Nick, Trade, which was which was really a lot of people uh i think find it really fascinating what a lot of us kind of just take for granted and, and think is normal to a certain point you know yeah absolutely absolutely it's a it's a circus life and uh and i and i find it funny because you know now i'm i'm 35 i'll be 36 in, in the in the uh in the middle of the year here and my 15 year old son is now starting wrestling training and he's been training it to become a professional wrestler for six months now. And, and it's just kind of crazy how it's kind of become a family affair, especially with frontline pro and, and, and putting everything together. And my wife does all the business side things and runs the money and runs the, the, you know, the concessions and then, and, and the raffles and does all the, all the hard work. So I get to go dress up in tights and play, play Robin Hood for a little bit. So it's awesome that your son is now into it because I remember at that first show of the battle Royal, you had to do a splash on me from the top rope. Yeah. Don't worry. That's the first and last time you'll ever be anywhere near him. <laughs> hey man, I'm just, I'm just saying I gotta follow that court order. That's all. <laughs> hey, those, those damn red dots keep popping up. You know what are you gonna do? <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't get that personal with everything. But no, I mean, I, I I gotta say, man, I'm really looking forward to uh, you know to seeing everything and hearing about it. Because I mean, I mean, knowing a person's one thing and having a chance to chat at him with the show or chat with them at a show excuse me, is, you know, is obviously really cool and everything, but, you know, looking forward to hearing your show and, you know, and hearing your story and not only the wrestling side of it, but of course the military side of it. Because um, I think a lot of people don't even consider that. And, and I'm sure for you, it's, you know, got to be kind of a real pain when you're sitting at home on a Sunday afternoon and, you know, Navy Seals starring Charlie Sheen comes on and you're watching this stuff and you're like, man, this is total bullshit. None of that happens. It, it, oh, that happens all the time. It's all the time. I can't, I, uh, that one's not that bad. I, I'm more because so, I'm a Charlie Sheen fan, so it's all right. Uh, I, he, he gets a pass along with Swayze. So, you know, and Sam, <laughs> and Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott gets a pass too. But 
course. I am I am kind of ripping off the Rogan podcast. He had a uh, I think he had a Navy SEAL on there, and they were talking about movies. But it is always funny to talk to people in the military, and you'd be like, I mean, a grenade doesn't make a huge fireball when it goes off. They're like, no, man, it's it's some dust or whatever. So I'm sure you get a kick out of that. Yeah, I do. I do. There, there's those are funny. Uh, I like watch. I like watching ones that. Uh, that go over the top with stuff. Like I watch platoon and I just, and I honestly, I laugh, which is terrible. I shouldn't laugh because there's nothing funny about platoon, but I laugh. You want to know, you want to know a military movie that gets it pretty close to, 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 to reality and no lie. It's full metal jacket. Okay. It's still the original and best, huh? It's, it's as close to real as basic training stuff goes. That, that's, that shit's dead on. Yep. Yep. Oh, when they uh, leave, leave. What's oh, what's it, the name of the guy? He's actually yeah, Harley Emery. Yeah, yeah, yeah when he, yeah. so yeah. he actually had some background. He had input and in all that was done, and that's probably why it was good. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I gotta say, and I gotta say, Ben. I mean, you and I uh, do kind of have a bit of a connection through some of our uh, through some of our most favorite movies. Uh, those being the, the Roger Moore uh, James Bond movies, ranked ranked very high in our, in our movie scale. Moonraker, like a motherfucker. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> if, if if you guys if you guys could name your podcast, it should be Moonraker, like a motherfucker for this one. But I, I know you gotta you're gonna have to have to you know. Star out the fucker part because you don't want to have that. But. Oh, yeah, you're making a strong case. I gotta tell you, I'm gonna see what I can do here. Well, Quinn, if they give you any guff, man, you know, there's there's always a way to handle that, which is which which would be to like you know, either T-bone. I, yeah. Oh no, I wasn't gonna have him. I wasn't gonna have him do that. I was just gonna have him feed you pie. So. Well, see, I was thinking I would just say, put your shoes on and I'll buy you an ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would work, too. So, Ben, uh, as we wrap up here, tell people where, we, where they can find everything for your, your still here, your, your social media, all that. Absolutely. Uh, you can find anything with Frontline Pro through Frontline Pro 1 on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can find it on Facebook uh, under Frontline Pro. Uh, and then for still here, stillheremovie.com is the website you can go to and check out our, our, our website for the movie. Uh, also, it's on Facebook as well. Uh, still Here is also on Twitter and, and Instagram. Uh, you can find it there. If you type in Still Here Movie, it'll pop up. You'll see it right away. And so, yeah, that's where you can find us on the social media stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at BenMcCoy825. Uh, and uh, I'm on Facebook too under Ben Monty because I don't believe in fan pages because they're just it's a big pain, pain in the ass to deal with, and uh, <laughs> which is why I haven't won over 400 followers or fans on my on my Facebook uh, fan page in like two years. So, and I just want to quickly get this in: you can catch Ben from what I'm told on Busted Open potentially Thursday or Friday. They haven't told me yet. We'll get to you. <laughs> yeah, I know we're fil- I know we're recording or as they like to say, taping on uh, on Tuesday and and going from there. So. They told me Monday. Well, they'll give us the full details. So on Monday, you'll we'll we'll have everything for you. Wonderful. Well, all right, Ben. Well, I appreciate we appreciate the time that you took out for us tonight and helping us give the rub a little bit. So hopefully, we can uh, do this again very very soon. What do you, what, 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 do you, what do you know, Ben? Coming in and putting three guys over, just like old times. <laughs> oh, time. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think the last time we worked, I put you over. So I think yeah, <laughs> you had one coming. You're, oh, hey, yeah. hey at, least, at least you don't, at least you don't duck me like Dave Demone does for fucking you know half a, <laughs> half a decade. You know, I'm and Dave lays down know. for nobody. I don't even know what you're talking about, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. We wrestled that one time in Canberra when DJ Solaris was spinning. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, all right, Ben. We appreciate it, buddy. Why don't you go home and get some rest now? Absolutely. You guys take care. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you guys. We appreciate you for coming on. Thanks, brother. Thanks for everything. Take care, Quinn. Please get better friends. I'll I'll do my best. It's it's a limited selection up here in Appleton. (laughs) 